Welcome to ABA on Tap, where our goal is to find the best recipe to brew the smoothest, coldest, and best tasting ABA around. I'm Dan Lowry with Mike Rubio, and join us on our journey as we look back into the ingredients to form the best concoction of ABA on Tap. In this podcast, we will talk about the history of the ABA brew, how much to consume to achieve the optimum buzz while not getting too drunk, and the recommended pairings to bring to the table. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and always analyze responsibly. Thank you, thank you, and welcome yet again to another episode of ABA on Tap. I am your co-host, Mike Rubio, along with Daniel Lowry. Dan? How you doing, Mr. Mike? You know, hanging in there. We're uh, back to taking advantage of technology and recording uh, remotely, if you will, and that's okay. I think that's allowed, and we've actually prided <laughs> ourselves recently, professionally, in being able to offer that flexibility to clients, whether it's uh, potential exposure or... Uh, hot weather, heat wave, now that we're doing outdoor sessions a lot of the times. Uh, so yeah, this is good, man. I, you know, Don't always uh, praise the Zoom, and a lot of people like uh, talking about how fatiguing it is these days, but uh, in terms of convenience and flexibility, we'll offer it a little praise today. huh? So I'm excited, if man. If it weren't for Zoom, uh, a lot of people, including us, would probably be out of work right now, so got to well, appreciate that. But um, changing subject, man, yes. I am super stoked about the... Uh, the podcast topic today and differential reinforcement been looking forward to it and we had a we had a couple good podcasts on um the criticisms of aba and looking at them but getting back in the comfort zone and, and looking forward to talking about some good old you know meat and potatoes aba and <laughs> and some ways we can improve uh, or just um some you know some aba strategies so super excited for today mike yeah yeah likewise let me uh let me just throw the, the theme out there, and then I'm going to let you give us a, a more thorough intro. Um, I think that this is probably, for me, one of the more important frontiers in um, sort of in-home or lab to the living room, ABA, in terms of how it's been defined and how underused it is. But I really think that it lends... Um, the key to super dynamic, natural environment training style uh, ABA. So we're going to be talking about uh, the wonders of differential reinforcement. Uh, Dan, give us a little uh, little background, a little history, a little knowledge there. Yeah, I mean, I think differential reinforcement is quite possibly the most important concept in, in ABA because ABA is built on reinforcement. Like I always tell my, my staff, you can't have reinforcement without differential reinforcement because you're always reinforcing something and putting something else on extinction. Otherwise, you're not reinforcing. So it's hugely important concept. Kate um, came about with talking with you about um, kind of how linear things get in ABA and how we can maybe make it a little more contextualized and a little less lab and more living room and more just naturalistic and social with differential reinforcement and putting things into ABCs, but maybe a little bit different than we might be comfortable or accustomed to. So look forward to talking about that. Um, and, and yeah, I think that, um, I guess getting started that 
a lot of times with our assessments, uh, we ask parents skills that their kids do and skills that their kids don't do. Um, and parents are really good at letting us know all of the things their kids can't do and the maladaptive behaviors they're, they're emitting because parents, people are hardwired to look for these maladaptive behaviors. But when we, I can't tell you how many times uh, a parent's like, they just won't stop hitting themselves or they just won't stop using this language. And I'm like, well, what do you want them to do? And the parents pause and they have to think about it because they don't even know what the appropriate replacement behavior is that they're trying to mm -hmm. see, which means they have no idea what they're trying to differentially reinforce. All they know that they're trying to stop something and you can't stop something. You always have to replace it, right? It's like telling an alcoholic not to drink. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> not going to be too successful. So uh, I'll pass it back to you, Mike, and we can go ahead and get started. But uh, I think this concept of differential reinforcement is going to be exponentially important to any parents, practitioners. Um, if you want to see um, more constructive uh, behavior, you know, management and uh, you know behaviors morphing with your kids and clients. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, again, it's, I think it's a really important frontier, and it's an area that, um, technologically speaking, is, is very complex, I find, um, in terms of data tracking, in terms of the, the way systems are conceptualized. Again, very linear in nature. Can't use that, that, uh, that word enough in this sense. Uh, but at the same time, I have to admit that, that technologically speaking, I don't feel very fluent in differential reinforcement. And at the same time, from an applied perspective, I actually feel quite skilled <laughs> at <laughs> applying differential reinforcement. And I think a lot of that lies in the readiness to look at um, multiple three-part contingencies active at once. So one of the things that we discussed in preparation for this podcast um, were some of the obstacles that are naturally part of ABA, uh, especially in current day practice in the way we train a lot of our behavior technicians and the way a lot of our basic training in ABA, especially professionally speaking, comes about. We talk about discrete trials. We talk about three-part contingencies. And how many reinforcing consequences in your experience, Dan, do those reinforcing contingencies usually involve? How many items? Are we looking at many possible ways to reinforce many different behaviors? Or are we looking at one SD, one response, one consequence? No, nah, man. It's it's one response right. and then the iPad's coming. That's that's ABA. Yeah, and so and only one reinforcer, right? That, that darn iPad. We love him. We hate him. <laughs> um, but you get my point. So maybe let's spend some time on that. By design, yes. by practice, by the way we train, by the way we conceptualize this linear three-part contingency, that already leaves differential reinforcement out of the picture. There's already only one consequence that we're defining because we're taking this very lab-oriented, idyllic, you know, three-part sequence that's obviously going to happen like that every time. And again, I'm not saying it's, it's incorrect to conceptualize it that way. It's just not living room practice. So... What, what do you uh, what do you think about that? I that was really enlightening when you you brought that up to me because we are so just hardwired into the ABC continuum and what that is is the ABC. So there's one A, there's one B, and there's one C. Uh, but there's so many behaviors even when even when you're talking right. If if I'm in front of you, which I'm not, but I can still see you over Zoom. There's so many behaviors you're you're vocalizing, but you're giving me facial expressions. You're giving me gestures. You're you know, doing all sorts of things at the same time. So 
for you to say like you're vocalizing a man, well, there's so much extra that goes into that. So many, I guess we could call them auxiliary behaviors that to say, oh, there's this, just this one behavior. Well, what if I say my man's in a level nine voice versus a level two voice? You know, what if I say it, um, with a cuss word before it or not? Like there's all sorts of different behaviors that kind of break from the linear, uh, you know, I hold a phone in front of you. The kid says, I want phone and I give him the phone. Um, there's so many other behaviors in there that I think we need to start acknowledging and uh, looking at the complexity of that, because then we can start to find things to differentially reinforce. Because if I'm giving the SD of holding, uh, a phone in front of you and my case managers told me that I need to hold, withhold that phone until you look at me in the eye and you say, I want phone. And that's all you can say. And then I can give you the phone. There's going to be plenty of times where we're just going to be both stuck in neutral because you're not doing it. And then I have to put you on extinction until you do the behavior I want. But there's so many other behaviors in there that could be differentially reinforced. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And we've we've discussed, and we actually, um, in all fairness, we'll just start admitting that we love beating the dead horse of blanket extinction. But it comes up as this, this great example of where we get stuck and dig our heels into this very procedurally sound but, uh, you know, not socially valid practice in terms of only one outcome being able to arrive at a, at a desirable consequence, right? A change in experience as a result of your behavior that makes you go, oh, like, uh, just the simple idea that, that um, when we withhold items... You know, the simple idea that it can come closer if you're getting closer, that you might be able to, and I, I get to practice this more easily with, with younger children, but just in doing the joint attention uh, paradigms, which I love for, uh, for this reason, I think they involve a lot of natural differential reinforcement, is the idea is that if you naturally grab an item that's in my hand and I just squeeze it tight so you can't take it out of there, at some point that child's going to look at my face and be like, hey, aren't you going to let this go? And then I can let go that first time. Because now I've taught them to look at my face, which means the next time I can insist on a little bit more with a different item that's, you know, now got uh, more novel value or, or what have you. Those things that were our best practices are usually very good at, at contriving. Uh, and I think, you know, that's maybe for a, a later date, but I think that that's where we've spent a lot of time in ABA uh, measuring and, and uh, documenting our data maybe a lot of times toward best practices, things that we should just be doing no matter what, but we're checking these boxes because that's what we've been trained to do. And again, this will be for a later date, but are we really defining a lot of times uh, the real socially significant behavior or have we you know, taken um, exemplars for targets? Uh, and I, I think we've, talked, we've alluded to this topic before. We'll get into it at a later date. But I think, it, you know, again, it, it has relevance here with um, the idea of differential reinforcement. Um, you alluded earlier, and I don't know if you want to bring this back, but even just the idea of, of replacement behaviors, functionally equivalent replacement behaviors, uh, falls prey to this linearity of a three-part contingency. Replacement yep. behavior or behaviors, that's a big difference in those two terms. <laughs> and I think the singularity tends to be our habit. Yeah. Um, let me, I do want to say one thing and then I, I think the good segue into appropriate replacement behaviors is that think about like differential reinforcement in terms of just taking it out of the ABA context and just into the human interaction context, right? So let's say you and I are having a debate about, I don't know, whatever, po politics, right? And 
I don't know, let's say you're a Biden supporter and I'm a Kanye supporter or whatever. It, it doesn't matter um, what it is. But if you're saying if you're establishing your point and I disagree with your stance on something, I'm not just going to be like, nope, I disagree. You're on extinction. We got to find some common ground, right? It's got I have to differentially reinforce some parts of your stance so we can establish a common ground, right? So like, hey, man, I might not agree with your stance on taxes, but that abortion stance makes sense or that stance on sexuality makes sense or something like that. So just because you're not exhibiting the entire behavior or belief in this stance doesn't mean that I have to just put you on extinction. We can find areas to differentially reinforce. Once you find those areas of differential reinforcement within a conversation, you can then get on common ground. Now, it seems kind of one of the things with the divided society, and we won't get too much into that, that people <laughs> aren't willing to differentially reinforce anything and now they're just getting stuck in it's all or nothing. And I see a lot of that similarity um, with, with ABA and that it's, it's the entire behavior I want or nothing. I can't, I can't accept anything else. So um, that just came to my mind as we were talking. I think it's super relevant um, as people try to put it in the differential context, into the differential reinforcement, into the context of just everyday interaction and how we're constantly differentially reinforcing people through our conversations and all sorts of different interactions. Um, I heard somebody lend a great statement about uh, conversation. You, you bring that in here, and I think the conversation is a great analog for this idea of differential reinforcement. When you're trying to make a connection with somebody, and, and that's what we're very good at in building rapport, combina uh, conversation is really just a combination of mans and introverbals, right? That's really, if you, if you break it down, that's all a conversation really is. And a lot of times, again, we're establishing this idea that we're going to have one set of those in linear fashion, and then we're going to get stuck on prompting that one over and over to get the one response that we're after that we've called the target when really it's just one exemplar of, you know, say, a larger uh, vocal behavior semantic category or, or something like that. So um, it, it's, it's interesting how pervasive this linearity is. Um, and in, in, uh, in everything we do, it just seems to really, to really disallow us from looking at the greater range of consequences, the greater range of allowable behaviors that do occur because we dig our heels in in one singular linear contingency most often. Now, even when we do apply DRI, DRO, DRA, or you know, differential reinforcement of incompatible other or alternative behaviors, how many times in practice or in, in theory and reading do you see those being suggested in tandem or, or in conjunction? We're also using those in a singular application. So are you going to do a DRI? You're going to do a DRA? You're going to... It's the idea of this now moving away from conversation um, as an analog in this interchange of mans and introverbals where we might not necessarily get reinforced for that man we put out or, uh, you know, that, that introverbal doesn't get offered back to us as a speaker, it doesn't necessarily mean that we give up and then not put anything else out there. So instead of having a conversation, often what we're having is, um, I'm not even sure what you would call it, but I, I know we had a chuckle as we were preparing for this and, you know, looking at your basic greeting paradigm and it's like, hello, Dan, 
And then you don't say anything, so let me prompt you, Dan, now you say hello to me. I mean, how natural does that sound and how differentially reinforcing is that by nature? Um, it isn't. It isn't. Uh, so how we sort of pursue this idea uh, as more of a conversation that uh, it's really our role to make the conversation happen, so we're going to have to put that mand out there and that, that, you know, that hook and that, that engagement signal out there to try and get a response, and then we can reinforce that response. And then we're going to sure. try to get another one and reinforce that response. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to prompt it and model or prompt it every time. You know? So, um, yeah, I know I've said a lot there. I'll hand it over to you. I don't know if anything, any of that made sense yeah. or inspired any. Absolutely. Um, I think it's, again, that constantly trying to get out of the lab. Like you said, very rarely. I mean, I've seen it in Cooper books, you know, chain DRIs with DRAs and things like that, concurrent DRIs, DRAs. Those, I mean, those do exist. Um, sure, but sure. I, I think it's coming out of the lab and um, the internal validity necessary for a lab. So in order for me in the lab to say a DRA works, I, that's all I can do. I can't do other things because the more things I'm doing at the same time are going to add confounds, and now we've got new independent Perfect. variables. So I'm losing the functional relationship between the DRA and the behavior chain. So in the lab, that's necessary, right? In EAB or maybe even ABA, but in BSD, behavior service deliveries, we deliver it. We don't need to prove, it's the whole reason that we don't do with, you know, really withdrawal designs because we don't need to prove necessarily which one is working. We just need something to work. And if, what we're, if we can make it more natural, then the parent doesn't care if it's a DRA or DRI. As long as we can do a treatment package, probably consisting of all of them in some regard, you know, I'm probably going to put, um, like somebody cussing at me, uh, maybe on like a DRO ish, um, and then do a DRA when they ask appropriately. Um, and you know, a DRA for, you can't cuss and not cuss at the same time. So a DRA and DRI is kind of the same thing in that point. Again, it gets kind of into lab semantics. Um, so without getting, you know, too much into that, my point being that let's not focus so much on which one we're doing uh, because we're past the lab stage. Let's do them all. Let's, let's get out of this linear. Let's get out of this. We need to prove it and just get into what's going to work most likely in a, a living functioning individual because we're not dealing with pigeons and, you know, lab rats. Excellent, excellent points. I think I'll, uh, you wrapped a lot of topics up nicely for us there. So let's, Let's try to move ahead. Yeah. You make a good point at the end there. It's kind of what we do, right? We tend to task analyze um, and, and, again, define these uh, sort of singular examples of what we're looking for to reinforce. When maybe there's a lot more incidental learning, incidental behaviors, like in a conversation, that we're looking to grab onto and, and continue, make something um, happen again in that sense. So one example I like to, to look at is that of a, a tantruming three-year-old. And they, let me describe this, and I'll try to do my best here and do it quickly. They, they tend to, to start crying uncontrollably. Uh, they also drop to the floor and in a pretty obvious attention-seeking manner, bang their head on the floor, you know, occasionally. Of course, as a parent, 
one, one emission of that behavior is concerning enough. So let's kind of try to work together to dissect that or task analyze some of the incidentals that might happen or some of the things that we might prescribe that might happen towards really arriving at what would be, you know, again, looking at my uh, ideal uh, British child uh, standing <laughs> straight up and their hands behind their back and poised and looking straight in your eyes and speaking very properly uh, with perfect etiquette, right? So we can get from the floor crying, kicking, screaming, hitting my head and seeing if you're paying attention to that point. But a lot of times in practice, as we've discussed before, we are often conceptualizing waiting for the reinforcement to occur until some much greater semblance of the desired behavior like them standing fully or like them being completely quiet uh, and standing and verbally communicating before we're offering you know, some reinforcement where would it be reasonable for the sake of discussion that you might offer reinforcement to the child for still being on the ground but not crying? And how often have we conceptualized things that way? And then further, what if they stand and they're trying to catch their breath and talk to you, but their tone still sounds inappropriate? How often do we see, you know, professionally, well, no, that's not appropriate. Your tone, or our girl saying appropriate tone. Have we missed a differential reinforcement opportunity there? I would say we have every time. So now the answer yes. that we've been kicking around here is functionally equivalent. We're working toward functionally equivalent replacement behaviors, but we're saying that along the way, there are other scenarios that we might not offer five marshmallows for, but we're going to offer one. Get a little taste of something good, because that part was right. But usually we're saying, nope, that part was cool, and that one was cool too, but you didn't get the right tone, and you're crying still, so no, you don't get any reinforcement. And we've, we've lost a whole bunch of desired behavior or prerequisite behavior toward the goal and just left it without any attention. Yep. A hundred percent, man. That it's so again, yeah, it goes back to the ABC. Um, I think that the important question here is what do you want your kid to do? And what are you willing to accept? Um, that's the important thing. And like I guess preface this and we've come full circle, which is awesome. I can't tell, I can probably count on, you know, almost one hand, how many parents have had that answer ready. Uh, they'll know oftentimes what they want them to do. Sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. But, you know, what they're willing to accept is all across the board. And that's that's got to be how we how we start this differential reinforcement with the appropriate – God, and you, you brought – we should almost never really use appropriate the word of appropriate replacement behavior anymore. It should be appropriate replacement behaviors. It should always be pluralized, right, because there's not just one behavior that we want to differentially reinforce multiple behaviors, some semblance in, in the direction of that, you know, that terminal behavior that we're trying to achieve. Um, but there's a lot of behaviors within there. So many behaviors. So I think, I think you that's make an really excellent important. point in terms of the, the technologies there. And, and you, you, you certainly, um, offered, I think, good insight there in terms of, of, uh, Combining differential reinforcement procedures, I, you know, I was making the point that in practice, maybe um, we don't uh, we don't necessarily see them uh, happen together as much as we'd like. The best example that comes to mind right away is this: the idea of shaping. So the technology is there, 
right? Even just by description, the idea of shaping uh, intimates all the various behaviors like um, maybe you're still lying on the floor and kind of hitting your head or pretending to and you're looking at me but you're not crying. It, it intimates all those little scenarios along the way that you might lend a little love to. You might lend a little of that attention to or whatever the function is. You might lend a little of that based on that behavior um, as you work toward it but you know, even in saying functionally equivalent replacement behavior, that shaping idea, you know, gets thrown out the window a little bit. So it, it is, it, not only do we have this focus on uh, sort of a linearity and the three-part contingency, you know, by nature, as we we're saying, almost eliminates the idea of many consequences, let alone many behaviors that might receive certain consequences in uh, route to or shaping a functionally equivalent replacement behavior. Um, but then we also have this traditional focus on the aberrant behavior as our what we need to focus and prove that we're reducing. Right? So that's, that's sort of our self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Well, let me ask you a question, Mike. If we are successful and we, um, we have these maladaptive behaviors, these behaviors for decrease, and let's say we're 100% successful, so we get all of the behaviors for decrease, then what do we end up with? Nothing. We end up with a kid sitting there doing nothing. I'm not sure that would be considered a success in anyone's book. Well, well I mean, and, and, and it's funny because maybe, you know, uh, from a point of relativity, if your kid's punching holes in the wall, then yes. But we're saying, well, we can get it there. We can actually move in the other direction. We can then look at all the aspects of learning that are available. Um, you know, if we're able to reduce that um, undesired behavior, by definition, there had to be something we differentially reinforced as we didn't reinforce any aspect of the undesired behavior. But again, it's, it's not necessarily what's in our language or the way we conceptualize uh, because of the urgency, because parents need us there to reduce the obvious, you know, so that the idea, the notion that we're going to come in here and and maybe say, which would be very practical, hasn't everybody else, if we're here, hasn't everybody else already defined the aberrant behavior? What if we just place our the focus on... Sure yeah, what if we just place our focus on the stuff that makes that go away as opposed to continually focus on that stuff that allows us to be here? If that makes any sense. A hundred percent, Mike. And um, I want to pass it back to you because you brought up a really interesting... Uh, premise actually in the field that we work in uh, our day-to-day -day behavioral practice especially with some of your early start under three clients um, and that you you've basically almost gotten rid of the behavior for decrease just almost thrown it out um, both from a quantifiable perspective and like a application perspective that I think you think that <laughs> by doing that it it leads the RBTs or the behavior technicians to focus on other things so um, that was a great idea. It seemed to be pretty successful so far. So let me pass it back to you on why you've done that, because I think differential reinforcement is probably the answer. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Dan. And, and uh, it is, uh, it almost sounds heretical, right? That <laughs> I actually have reports that don't have any behaviors for decrease. And I'll be the first one to say that um, it's not that there aren't undesired behaviors. It's just that I've begun to apply this notion that 
you already know that. So now early start and the younger kiddos kind of give me, an, and as they often do in our conversations, they give me a nice developmental premise and framework to start with because I can expect certain things to be online and then there's already some delays. So it's easy for me to realize that a kid that hasn't started talking before the age of three might cry a lot. So I can explain that premise a little bit better in terms of its function or lack thereof uh, from a social perspective or a diversified social perspective. So it's a little bit easier for me to get away with this. And, and I want to say that. Um, I, by no means am I saying that, that measuring undesired behavior or the challenging behavior is it, it's obviously a huge part of our, um, of our task in many situations. Um, but allow me to sort of explain a little further and, and, and maybe other parts will apply to people that are listening. Um, knowing that certain under three-year-olds are going to cry quite a bit if there's been a language and socialization delay, um, I'm able to then shift the focus to the verbal behavior, to the joint attention pieces, um, to all those other things that are going to naturally build awareness. Some uh, level of, of, of self-soothing and self-regulation that comes from being aware of your environment and understanding what's happening next and that, you know, someone like us is there kind of offering you uh, the world and all sorts of uh, hopefully enjoyable, you know, activity and, and, and experiences. Um, I've been able to then shift our, our form and function, our application to, like you said, really just focusing on teaching those things and then not occupying our technicians' hands with data or anything other than a simple behavior plan that we've discussed and that they have in their head and that they've also already worked with the parent and they're working in tandem and, and I've been there to work it a little bit. Um, and the, these are the best practices that I alluded to earlier. Well, this is our bread and butter. Why do we have to measure and write this out so much? I mean, again, I'm not saying documentation is not so important, but this is some of the linearity or the some of the a few of the foci that maybe take our focus away from more of the dynamic practice and the differential reinforcement aspects of, that we're trying to to elucidate here and to to, to shed more light on in that sense exactly. Um, so again, the, I've been able to get away with this and and. And it hasn't applied for every early star client or every early childhood client that I deal with because on the other end, and this will be really interesting, um, I think in discussion, I'm not sure if we'll be able to explore it more now or later, then there are the other kiddos I'm discovering that once I'm able to help them self-regulate, if you will, uh, to calm them down, to, to, to reduce their threat response, then a lot of the deficits that were examined and evaluated are no longer proving relevant outside of having missed a little practice because there was a child with such a high autonomic response. So in that sense, those kids only have a few behavior goals in terms of measuring reduction of this response or this behavior because by and large, once we do that, I see that all the other areas are okay for the most part. They just so you know, so verbally or, or from a communication perspective, we're still gonna look at things like one step instructions because for a two year old that's just cool from a receptive uh, communication aspect and from a compliance perspective and a, you know making them more teachable. So we can still measure those things, but again, now I have, you know, just a few developmental goals in those domains and then now a real true focus on the quantifiable pieces of the aberrant behavior but not necessarily measuring a whole bunch of aspects other than 
the decreased duration and frequency, having worked out a pretty clear but simple behavior plan with everybody involved. So I love it. I, I, you know, I, I know that, and I'm very uh, grateful that you bring it up because it's, it's something that um, I'm, I'm very proud of over professionally over the past couple years that um, you know, people like yourself have encouraged development of, of stuff like this and, and allowed me to try it out. Um, and then, then further, you know, seen for what, seen it for what it's worth. So I'll be the first to say that it doesn't apply across the board. Uh, in terms of practice yet. I think that the concept and the construct, though, does. I think that it's good for us to start thinking about the idea that, that we already know there's undesired behavior there. Do we really have to count it? Like, oh. And, and how, how, how often do we have to count it? How, how big of a focus does it have to be in our data tracking and our efforts outside of the procedures to reduce it? I think what I'm getting from you is that... Um, that you you're almost kind of looking at these behaviors as almost just like noise and how do we filter through this noise to find the message that's being conveyed in there right it's like static but you can hear some lyrics and let's focus on the lyrics not the static or you i don't know i asked my girlfriend to do something and like hey do you want to go to this thing she doesn't want to go to and she's like well i don't know maybe yeah i'll go but and then i hear the yeah i'll go i don't care about the other stuff just noise and so that's kind of what we're, we're talking about in this situation is, yeah, the yelling and the screaming and the protesting, that's all noise. Let's not focus on that. Let's focus on what's behind that and what could be reinforced within that and stop spending so much time on the, well, the fact my girlfriend said she'll do something that I wanted to do. Did, does it matter that she didn't say, yes, I'd love to do that, honey? Like, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, why does it need to be back in this linear context, right? There's just so much noise. So let's not focus on that. Let's focus on the message behind it. I like that. Uh, I like that concept of noise. Continue. I think I took your word. Yeah. There. No, yeah. Uh, I'll go, go ahead, Mike, if there's anything you want to finish up on before we get to proactive and reactive. But, yeah, I think that concept of noise, we need to, um, you know, kind of drill we in the with, signal. Our, with our field. Yeah, we're, we're looking for a different signal, which is not that aberrant behavior signal. So that, that signal to noise ratio you're talking about, man, that's perfect. Like, it's like a... It's like when you're trying to connect your your TV, something behind your TV, but you need somebody to monitor the picture, you know. <laughs> and the way we're doing that right now is like we're trying, and then we're looking, and then you know we're asking, is it is it the picture there? And they're like, nope. And then we're not trying anything else. We're really in that picture, which or in that scenario, what you should be doing is wiggling that connection, trying to figure out like why is it not grabbing, continuing to apply some sort of solution to it. <laughs> but instead, the way we're practicing is, you know, oh, okay, let me try to plug it in. Did it work? Nope. Okay, now let me reset my trial. Well, let me try the same thing again. Oh, picture? Nope. Okay, <laughs> let me try again. So it's it's you know, and again, I, I'm not trying to make fun of of, of our efforts because uh, empirically, scientifically speaking. Speaking from a from a methods perspective, they're they're solid. They're they're spot on. Like we like to talk about in this brewing, uh, you know, analog and comparison of ours. Uh, there's a lot of things sort of coming together and filtering and ebbing and flowing uh, to arrive at the right taste in your living room. So uh, I think those you know these are all uh, really really important constructs um, of this frontier of differential reinforcement, which. I know even just a minimal exploration over the past couple of years um, from a real pragmatic perspective uh, has, 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 uh, has done very well for us in practice. So um, we are, we've had a good time today. 
had enough of a, had a good brewing session, um, sort of leads us to this idea that if we're talking about reinforcement and we're still talking about consequence-based ABA. And that, there's nothing wrong with that, but if it's one thing we've made clear in our brewing sessions is that, man, there's three parts to this contingency. And why are we only turning the C knob when that A knob can use some adjustment and some changes too? Uh, something we'd like to talk to parents about and something that I'm gonna say, we don't have time to get into today and that's okay, it's its whole other topic, but the idea of differential reinforcement, yes, then what else? do we have to look at um, to apply in that recipe, uh, along with this now dynamic differential reinforcement that involves a lot of different C's that, you know, or different B's that get different level of C uh, that might be evoked by all sorts of different acceptable and, and uh, uh, diverse A's to promote generality. So we're talking about antecedents, behaviors, and consequences. Uh, what else, Dan, do you think might lie in this equation? Yeah, that, that ABC, right? So it's like your TV example. You keep plugging the TV in the same way or trying to adjust the picture the same way, and you get the same consequence, and then you just get frustrated, right? The same antecedent and the same behavior leads to the same consequence, and eventually people are like, ah, screw the TV. When maybe they could have just changed the antecedent and what they were doing or the knob that they were twisting. So and, that's and then you hear, comes down. Well, I don't know. The kid doesn't want to do it anymore. They don't seem engaged. Really? <laughs> You've been doing the same little contingency 50 million times, but they seem disengaged? Wow, that's surprising. You, you give me a headbanging kid, and I can probably evoke a headbanging behavior. Like, that's not, that's not rocket science. <laughs> that's pretty good. Right? I like that. Um, <laughs> Wait, so the, but, the behaviors that were listed in the report, I can come in here and make them happen easily because they were already happening? <gasps> wow. And I can, you know what? I can mark it as a trial, and then it looks like it did something. That's a, um, that's a minus. <laughs> so... We, we can address it more um, in the next podcast, but the, the concept of differential reinforcement, for something to be reinforcement, it has to you know, occur after a behavior, be contingent on a behavior, and increase the behavior. That after the behavior is a difficult context. So it, it's, it's very difficult because differential reinforcement could be done proactively, but it's reinforcement, so it has to be done reactively. So the question is behaviors <laughs> are always occurring. So, yes, it's done reactively to one behavior, but then proactively to a subsequent behavior in a behavior chain. So, it let's differentially reinforce some behavior before the likely, you know, if we're talking about headbanging, the headbanging behavior occurs. What behaviors can we reinforce before we get to that headbanging behavior? Because, you know, we can evoke that behavior. That's no problem. And then I can differentially reinforce after it. But now it's occurred. And now learning's not really going to be that on board until that behavior stops and now we're back at blanket extinction which side note i think i'm gonna get a blanket extinction blanket i'm gonna make that um, <laughs> but that'd be but, awesome <laughs> yes. you know what that's an idea we'll have to talk about off the air <laughs> but anyway i digress back from my blanket extinction blanket that we gotta differentially reinforce proactively and what i mean is before that undesired behavior occurs. We can call it non-contingent reinforcement. Uh, but it's going to be sure. contingent on basically the absence of uh, the behavior that we don't want to have happen. Let's start looking for that. Let's make that a priority as opposed to looking for those instances of headbanging, which are probably going to occur because we know they occur. Let's find the behaviors that are happening in its place that we can reinforce. 
So in that sense, sort of as a little final point, and uh, leads us back to, to involving our, our, our dear friends and, and colleagues, the occupational therapists, when we talk about things like sensory diets, that should be applied before the head banging episode and not during? Is that what you're saying? So that shouldn't happen. You shouldn't get a massage as a result of banging your head, but you might get a massage in, in hopes that you might be relaxed enough to not bang your head? Is that kind of what we're... Yes, and how much you want to bet that kid engaged in a lot of behaviors before they engaged in banging their head? Maybe like, hey, mom, I don't want to do the homework. I'm not going to do the homework. Some vocalization, maybe not the best of a vocalization, or for a non-vocal client, maybe like, eh, eh, like some whining or fidgeting and stuff like that before it got to the head banging that could have been reinforced but didn't get reinforced, and then it went to the head banging. And now we're on consequence based. Yep. Yep. All, all very, very important points. We've covered a lot of ground today um, in terms of differential reinforcement, looking at our three-part contingency and by definition not being very conducive to differential reinforcement um, and how we train our young professionals in sort of discrete trial. All very important information, again, not very conducive to differential reinforcement. Um, we covered the idea that replacement behaviors and the application of even uh, differential reinforcement of incompatible other or um, alternative behaviors continues to suffer from this sort of linearity or this blanket application. Uh, what else did we cover, Dan? We covered um, removing the maladaptive behavior focus to the adaptive behavior focus. Again, we covered uh, even doing differential reinforcement proactively, which sounds kind of like an oxymoron, but isn't necessarily. I think lastly, looking at this as, uh, and it wasn't the last point we discussed, but uh, one other point, looking at this as analogous to a conversation. And uh, as the professional, we're just looking for a way to start that conversation. We might say hello and not get a response. It doesn't mean we're going to keep going, hello, hello, hello. We got to differentiate our approach to arrive at some other differential uh, uh, admission of uh, behavior that is uh, alternative, incompatible enough from the targeted, undesired behavior that now we're rolling in that direction. So uh, I think all of these are very, very important things to consider as uh, we are all out there helping the tradecraft and the field progress and evolve. Uh, Dan, always a pleasure, yeah. sir. And we discussed, too, um, our first merch idea as it gets colder in those winter months come on. Are we merchandising? The extinction Blanket is coming e your way. Extinction Blanket. Extinction Blanket so you can keep it at home and wrap yourself in it at night and not apply it ever again. Put yourself on extinction. Put your, just point. wrap yourself in your blanket extinction. Never use it again outside of your own home <laughs> or own little space at a football game or wherever you would like to promote <laughs> ABA on tap, which we're all for. So you guys are out there. Thank you for listening. We have some new listeners and some new likes on Facebook. Thank you for joining us. Please, 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 uh, as all our social media outlets say, we're very responsive to messages. You can give us a call. You can text us. You can leave us a message on Facebook. You can email us. Uh, please do reach out. Give us your feedback. What do you want to hear us talk about? What do you agree or disagree with? Uh, we want to hear from you. We want to keep this dynamic and, and a brew that everybody can um, not only stomach, but actually enjoy. So, <laughs> hey, man, always good to see you. Cheers, brother. Cheers, Mike. Always analyze responsibly. Cheers. All the best.